The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there and welcome to the Numinous Podcast where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, B.C. Sometime back around 2015, I think it was, I approached Taryn Strong, who was then a yoga teacher leading yoga for recovery here in Victoria. At the time, I was grounding my clinical hypnotherapy work in the abandonment wound, and I was studying attachment and building off much of the research of Dr. Bruce Alexander. He was best known for his rat park studies, which were popularized by Dr. Gabor Mate in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. I do wanna say though, it's actually Dr. Bruce Alexander, he has a paper, you can just Google it. It's called The Roots of Addiction in Free Market Society. That, if you wanna know what my work is about, where it's grounded, that's where it's grounded the roots of addiction in free market society. Anyway, so Taryn and I were both past teachers at the Victoria Yoga Conference, and I felt like our work would have significant overlap and also impact if we co-facilitated a session on abandonment, attachment, and addiction recovery. So we met for coffee, we talked, we got to know each other a bit, we hashed it out, and it was really well received. Just to clarify, I am not a yoga teacher. (laughs) Uh, I taught in the more like psycho-spiritual stream of programming at the yoga conference for many years. Um, So that is basically how our collegial relationship began, I guess you could say, as friendly collaborators. So that's why this conversation was so easy to have. We have a lot of respect and love for each other, and it's a pleasure for me to welcome Taryn to the show, finally. (laughs) Taryn Strong is one of the founders of She Recovers Foundation, as well as a coach, herbalist, and trauma-informed yoga teacher. Her courageous passion for recovering out loud has made her an influential voice in the global recovery movement. She creates transformational experiences online and in person. And as a certified trauma of money facilitator, she currently specializes in financial empowerment and money healing. And she also mentors entrepreneurs in recovery who are seeking support to take up that space, find their voice, expand their business through aligned impact. Also though, she's expecting her first child and Actually, her partner, Sid, did the video for my book, The Spirited Kitchen. He did the um, book trailer for us, so I've collaborated with her partner as well. And I was just really curious about how Taryn is navigating that rite of passage, of course, um, spiritually and creatively, though, and as an entrepreneur and also in the context of recovery. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did content note for this episode, we are talking about addiction and all of the conditions that create the need for recovery. So uh, be gentle, um, be discerning with your listening, how much, how long, etc. So Taryn, what identities do you lead with? Hi, Carmen. Oh, I love this question. So I identify as my preferred pronouns are she, her. And I identify as a woman in long-term recovery from many, many different things. Kind of the main ones have been um, substance use, as well as self-injurious behavior, codependency, disordered eating, um, and all the things that came with that trauma, you know, recovery from trauma. I identify as a, a witch as well which is in part thank to you of having a mentor and someone to look up to, to really help me, um, you know, reclaim the word and rise into that. So thank you for being a big part of that for me. And, you know, these days I identify as someone who is crossing, crossing the threshold from maiden to mother being seven months pregnant. And I'm also a gosh, trauma informed yoga instructor. I'm the founder of the she recovers foundation and a trauma of money coach and a business coach. So many, many hats. Mm -hmm. It already seems like a long life. Can I ask you how old you are? Yes, of course you can. I'm 37. 
okay yeah coming up on like the golden age almost yeah. there 40s oh, I'm and beyond excited. Yeah. Okay. So big, long journey already. I would love to share some of that backstory with listeners. Um, Maybe can we start with how you came to co-found She Recovers with your mother, Dawn? Um, Because, you know, everything, we'll just remind readers, may have some pretty intense history, but everything works out okay. (laughs) so far so it is an inspiring story so can you share a little bit about what you were going through when you were growing up before you got into recovery yeah absolutely so you know I my parents my mother and my father they were both addicted to cocaine was kind of their main drug of choice so I was born into a family of addiction I have an older sister as well And my parents were in the throes of their own addictions. And they were also, you know, my dad, there was domestic violence um, with my dad when he would kind of have some cocaine induced rage. And they were also doing a lot of illegal activities. So, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my early years, there was a lot of trauma. There was a lot, a lot of chaos. But I'm so lucky that my mom, when I was four years old, you know, had the courage to wake up and say, okay, this stops here. And she took my sister and I into a women's shelter and she went into treatment. Mm -hmm. And, and so then I actually grew up in a family of, of recovery. I have Mm -hmm. a great relationship with my dad today. such a great relationship with my mother. And I did grow up some of my earliest memories, the ones that weren't traumatic (laughs) were actually of 12 step meetings. Because back in the 80s, when my mom entered recovery, that's kind of what was available when you were in um, recovery from addiction. So my earliest memories were church basements, like literally, you know, that stereotype. And this was when you could smoke indoors. I remember (laughs) being so young in these cigarette smoked filled rooms and looking around and just knowing at a really young age that these were my people. And just not understanding, obviously, the the context or the content of what they were talking about. But I could just feel that the people in these rooms were truth tellers and they were seekers and they were real and they were raw. And I loved them and they became my extended family. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you would think that because I grew up in a a recovering home with the 12 steps, really our, our foundation for everything within our family, you would think I wouldn't have taken the path that I did. But, um, you know, we, we didn't really know about where well, I guess the conversation wasn't really about childhood trauma at this point, or maybe mm-hmm. it was, but we just weren't aware of it. And, you know, we had always kind of, I had always told myself, and I think my parents did too, that because I was so young, it didn't affect me, mm-hmm. but it turns out that it did. Mm-hmm. And when I was about 13, that's when I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, you know, it was marijuana and and alcohol, but I didn't really love those substances, to be honest. Um, So that's when I started the self-injurious behavior as a way for for coping. And at the time as well, I was the kid that nobody suspected would be struggling because I was a pianist in the Royal Conservatory of Music. I was a competitive Irish dancer. I was an honor roll student. But all of that was kind of, you know, what was underlying that was no self-worth, no self-esteem, no self-confidence. So kind of this, like I was starting to do this overachieving thing mm-hmm. and using the self-injurious behavior, the disordered eating, et cetera, as, as, a, as a kind of form of control, right? Right. It also and sounds like a lot of pressure. I think about, yeah. well, having been like a very high performance individual at a very young age myself, it's like, yeah, that seems like about the right time. Um, I think my dad took me into a bar and gave me a bottle of Dr. McGillicuddy's the first time when I was 12. And so, you know, that is kind of that time where there's like, okay, there's a couple different ways to cope here. Um, and I want to be good and I'm talented, but that also brings every time you achieve or do something well, your self-esteem becomes dependent on those external validations as well. You can't be tired. You can't be sad. You can't be burnt out. You have to perform and you just like, can't 
keep it going. Right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And the pressure, like the body image stuff for me with the competitive dancing was, you know, the competition between us young women was, is really interesting to reflect on now, but also, yeah, the body image stuff and the, the pressure and like the outright conversations about our body sizes and the shapes of that our body should be. Mm-hmm. So when I was 16, I, um, you know, it wasn't a peer pressure thing. Nobody that I knew was doing it, but I knew that I wanted to try cocaine because I was always intrigued by this <laughs> substance that had completely, you know, kind of derailed my parents' life for a little bit. I, I was always really curious about it. Mm-hmm. So 16 year old Taryn, somehow I couldn't even tell you how found it, found out how to get it. And the first time I tried it, I remember saying, this is it. This is Mm. what I have been looking for. Like, this is the thing. Wow. And I very, I very, very quickly became addicted. And I left home to live with my 17 year old crack cocaine dealing boyfriend. Mm. And, you know, him and I, we couldn't really afford our um, addiction to cocaine. So it very quickly then actually turned into an addiction to, to math. Mm. So, you know, I, I left home, I'm addicted, I'm living with my drug dealing boyfriend. And your parents must have been like, what the actual fuck just happened? Like, we have done all the things. They did all the things. They've been reeling. Did they come for you? Did they know? Yeah. So, you know, there, I lived in a small town in Alberta. So there were rumors. So they would actually hear at the grocery store, hey, have you heard what your daughter's up to? Like, hey, do you know who your daughter's dating? Mm. And one of my school counselors at the time had actually called me into the school to check in on me and see how I was doing. And he actually told my parents that I gave an Oscar winning performance because I duped them all. I duped all of them. What are you talking about? I'm fine. Look at this. Like, I'm doing wonderful. This was before I left home, of course. So there was definitely a little bit of denial going on. Mm. Um, And then when it all came to be, uh, yeah, they were just absolutely shocked. Mm -hmm. And they were also, you know, thank goodness they had their own recovery and they had their recovery communities Mm. because they had that foundation of, you know, my mom to this day will say she was able to be completely, you know, as clear as she could be through the process because Mm. of her own recovery. And because she had her recovery community to lean on through this, that's what got her through. Mm -hmm. And one thing that she did differently, though, and I know that this is why I'm sitting here today talking to you today, is a lot of the people, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not, this isn't to to say anything bad about 12-step programs, but, you know, one of the philosophies is kind of that you hit rock bottom, right? Mm. So some of the conversations that she was having with people was, well, you just have to let Taryn hit rock bottom and then she'll come home. Mm. But my mom had this like intuitive knowing that, Mm -hmm. well, you know, rock bottom for a 16 year old girl who's using crystal meth is actually probably death. And I'm not actually going to just like let that happen. Yeah. But of course, at the same time, I'm 16. So there is this element where she needs to just surrender and let Mm -hmm. go. And so what they did, what my parents did is they always made sure that I knew that they were there for me and that they loved me unconditionally and they weren't going anywhere. And when I had that moment, you know, you sometimes hear about that moment that people had. I I had that moment. I was in a hotel room in Edmonton, Alberta. We were living in hotel rooms. And this, my boyfriend at the time now was getting into to, um, gang activity. So I was mm-hmm. in a room with a bunch of older men, drugs, guns. It was scary. And I kind of, I had that moment of clarity where I saw the two paths. Mm-hmm. One path is I'm not making this, I'm not making out of this alive. And the other path is, is go home. And it's mm-hmm. going to be hard. Things are going to be hard, but I knew I was going to be okay. And I knew that I could go home and I was going to be loved. And I knew what was most important in that moment was I had so much shame. I Mm -hmm. also was in shock. I couldn't believe that I let myself get to where I was. Yeah. And what was, what saved my life was knowing that I was going to go home and I wasn't going to be met with shame. 
there were going to be consequences, of course. <laughs> there was there was going to be, like I said, I knew it was going to be a hard road, but I knew that I wouldn't go home and be scolded or shamed or, you know, I knew I was going home to people who got it. Mm-hmm. And and I went Can I home. pause you for a second? Because I'm yeah. noticing I'm like breathless listening mm-hmm. to you, like uh, partially because I'm the parent of a 19 year old who... Yeah. Fortunately, was born very risk averse. <laughs> so that's great. Um, that's my older but, sister, right? Yeah, we, it's like, they got we'll one. Take whatever we can get to get through these harrowing times. Um, but as a parent, like I'm just, I have so many clients of the, the, or you know, the the parents of my young people clients. You know, they're not coming to me because everything's so great, right? And right. so that thing of I'm. I'm having that conversation in my mind again, thinking of clients being like, you have to go get her. Like you have to go to her. Mm. She doesn't come with you. You tell her, I said those exact same words. You love her. You are not shaming her. You're not putting conditions on her return. Like just scoop her up and I just invite all the listeners to have a little stretch. Make sure your arms and legs are on. Make sure you're having like nice, deep parasympathetic breaths because it could, you know, it's like, there, but for the grace of God, go I. In many situations, I could have seen that happening to me as a young person. And then as a parent watching essentially your heart walking around independent from your body with arms and legs, there goes my heart, there goes me, my, my, my very essence of what I am doing here in this calling as a parent is just out there in a hotel somewhere. That's just very terrifying. So just want to yeah. acknowledge that, that this is this is intense for, for somebody to experience. It's even intense just to hear it. So did you just get the heck out of that hotel room and go knock on your parents' door? Was it a bit more of a process? Were you back and forth for a bit? No, it was the moment that I realized, um, you know, there was more to that particular day of things that happened, but it, it was just that universal divine life-saving um moment where I realized yeah no it's now or it's now or never and so I immediately went went home and and yeah I went home and now this is in you know the 90s and 12-step programs are still a thing but therapy is also an, an amazing tool and so when I got home, my parents actually, we instantly signed me up for therapy. I had two therapists, mm-hmm. you know, kind of more of a family therapist and then an, an actual kind of addiction and, and drug counselor therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 12 step programs, I never, I love them so much. They saved my parents' life. They saved millions of people's lives. But as a 16 year old girl, it just, it was, didn't feel like my place. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't do the 12 step programs, but I did therapy. And I, and that was really my, the one kind of tool that I had immediately after that was just such a healing experience for me to actually have, you know, our, this amazing therapist start talking about the traumas that I experienced as a child. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, like starting to have the, the light on these different experiences Mm -hmm. was such a game changer. So it was maybe less about just having a sense of being heard and seen or, or was that part of it too? You know, for some people, therapy is so much about, it just feels so affirming to finally be heard and not dismissed or minimized. But then, you know, there are also some folks who are like, no, I grew up with like very doting parents. I grew up in a loving home. I da, da, da. And then they don't realize, oh, actually, no, there's intergenerational trauma at play here. And therapy is more about frameworks and, and sort of uh, connecting the dots between things. Was it, was it one or the other, a bit more of one for you? You know what? It was definitely the connecting of the dots. It was a bit of both, actually. Now that that's such a great question. It was the connection of the dots and it was the validation of I always knew that the experiences that I remembered from my childhood were intense, mm. but I was also kind of told by the grown-ups around me that I was too young and it didn't actually matter. So it was that validation of being seen and heard and not, you know, not from a place of blame at all, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it was really validating. I remember 
I don't know exactly how she said it, but I, something that was just so life-changing for me was even if you don't have the, the memories, you know, the picture memories of what you went through, your body remembers, Taryn, your nervous system remembers, your energy remembers. Mm-hmm. And that was just so powerful. I could just feel the truth in that and how I was like, wow, well, this is starting to make sense why dance and movement has always been um, so healing for me and such a medicine for me. And yeah, it was just the connection of the dots was and really important. How did that influence your relationship with your mom? Like on the one hand, of course, as a parent, it's like, yes, I want to dose the field with many supportive adults for my child. And at the same time, that could probably be pretty confronting for, for your parents, but I think especially for your mom, because there is a, a, a very unique style of relationship uh, with with mother daughter, and since you work together now, I imagine you had to go through some shit <laughs> to make that work. Yes. Oh, I love this. Well, let me speak. I'll speak to that period, and then I'll speak to our recent okay. relationship. So, something that I just recently learned about that time of our lives as mother daughter was, you know, I'm going to therapy, and my mom was going to therapy. We were seeing the same same therapist. Oh, and, and I guess something that the therapist said to my mom, that was really important for her to hear was, I guess my mom was kind of approaching this whole situation. Like I was doing this to her, Hmm. you know, I was, I was addicted to cocaine and I was running away with the, with the, the, the drug dealer. And this was me doing it to her, Hmm. which was interesting because that's exactly what happened when she was 16 she did the exact same thing like talk about intergenerational trauma she left home she she says that she was addicted to cocaine and bad boys and so then at 16 I'm doing the exact same thing that she did and she was taking it all very personally and so the therapist said Dawn this isn't actually about you she's not doing it to you and that was really important for her and I think yeah, just helped, helped her, helped us just both um, move through this experience of, okay, we're we're having our own individual healing journeys right now. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's important to recognize. Mm -hmm. Now, we founded She Recovers in 2011. And that was an interesting transition, because at first, it was very rocky, Carmen, Mm -hmm. because we couldn't, we had to discern, when are we mother daughter? And when are Mm -hmm. we business partners? right? Mm -hmm. When sometimes I just need my mom, like, I don't need my business person. I I just need my mom. And sometimes you just need your kid. And sometimes I need you to take me seriously. You know what I mean? So there there were a lot of dynamics to work through. Mm -hmm. And so of course, what did we do? We got a therapist, um, kind of like a couple's therapist. Mm -hmm. And we had, we had three sessions with her, which wasn't planned. We really thought we would have more, but the first session we left the therapy office, literally, no, no exaggeration, yelling at each other down the street. Oh, stuff came up. We, you know, we thought it, it was a space for us to bring stuff up, clear the air. And we left that appointment, literally yelling at each other down the street. The next appointment was great. We were able to, you know, the therapist was able to help us actually hear the other person and, and what they were actually saying. <laughs> and then the third appointment, after half an hour, the therapist said, well, it was supposed to be an hour an appointment. Do you, do you just want to go? Like, I think, I think we're done here. And I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that we're ever done therapy, therapy or yeah. we're ever done our healing, but the communication issues that we were having and the power dynamic issues that we were having as mother, mother, daughter, business partners, we were able to resolve with a third party, mm-hmm. which was really, really, really great. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so then what do you have as the larger container for this relationship then moving forward? If it's not therapy, do you share like a business coach or is it like your accountant? Like who, it still seems like in business partnerships, let's put it in the business sphere, then it can be really helpful to have a larger container. Yeah. Well, now we have a brilliant team. Mm-hmm. We have an amazing team and, um, you know, it's not just the two of us anymore. It was just mm-hmm. the two of us forever. And now there's, there's just, there's more of us. And I think that that's just shifted the dynamics beautifully. Mm. And we've also, 
um, a part of our journey these last two weeks is actually, sorry, not two weeks, two years, few years has been to step back a bit more, hmm. um, you know, out of the day-to-day stuff, which is what really was causing the power dynamic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now just kind of stepping back, fully trusting our team and allowing our team to lead um, has been really nourishing and wonderful, not only for She Recovers Foundation, but for us as well. And what we've actually noticed um, over these past few years, which we're really grateful for, is because of this, we now have a lot more time to be mother-daughter. Mm-hmm. And we didn't realize how much we were missing that. Right. Every time we would talk, get together, even at family gatherings, like how annoying we would always be talking about work. Like my poor sister, my poor stepdad, like, so (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, And now it's, yeah, now we talk about mother daughter things. And then we we reserve the work conversations for the actuals in the schedule work conversations. So it's been a beautiful shift and it all happened in the timing that it had to happen. And it's all perfect. And so what are some of the offerings? Like how are you bringing forth your work through She Recovers now? It's, it seems like it's evolved a little bit over time, right? I remember when it was just Facebook page really, and some um, trauma-informed yoga and things like that. And so now what do you offer and what is it going to be moving forward? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We, we joke and we call it the accidental movement because when we started it in 2011, it was just a Facebook page. That's all it was supposed to be because this was when in 2011 on Facebook, what we now call memes, they weren't, I don't know. I mean, we didn't, I didn't know they were called memes back then, but in 2011, what was happening on Facebook was, you know, you'd find a pretty picture and you'd put a pretty quote on top of it. And that's what we started off She Recovers as. And what we wanted with the She Recovers Facebook page was a space for women at the time, and now, of course, women and non-binary individuals, to to find resources. And we wanted it to be resources for people who were recovering from all the things. Hmm. Because what we had experienced was... Okay, if you're an alcoholic, you go, it was really siloed. If you're an alcoholic, you go over here. If you have a problem with drugs, you go over here. If you have an eating disorder, you go over there. And of course, that makes sense and that's important. But, you know, those are all different coping mechanisms. And the essence and the underlying of those things is really that we all kind of got the same stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to create this space where we could all just get together and talk about the the stuff that was underneath the coping mechanisms. So that's where the Facebook page started and it was really landing. You know, the workaholics were really relating with the alcoholics and you know everybody <laughs> everybody was getting it and it, it was really beautiful. And it was fun because mom comes from that traditional 12 step. She's a, she has a PhD, she has a very academic like approach to addiction and recovery. And I was doing more of the, you know, trauma-informed yoga approach and herbalism and essential oils and sprinkle in you know, the different things. So we had very different patchworks of recovery. And so we were also wanting to have a place to talk about the importance of recovering in your own way and finding the tools that work for you and being celebrated for that and not being shamed and et cetera. So the Facebook page just organically was just growing and evolving. And because I was the trauma-informed yoga teacher, we started doing retreats. Keep in mind, we have full-time jobs. We have no intentions of ever this ever being anything other than just a fun side passion project. Mm. And it just organically, you know, there was a need. Obviously, mm. there was this need and it was resonating and landing. And it then evolved into in-person events workshops, retreats, et cetera. And you know, we always said, because it was true, that we were mission focused. It's not, a, this isn't about money. This is just about the mission. And that, what I will say was, um, it's not a very good business model hmm. because you know, although we were creating, we were um, co-creating with our community, such amazing, powerful, transformative spaces, there was a lot of struggle behind the scenes of mm. just trying to get things moved, like, you know, stay yeah. afloat financially. Yeah. 
and burnout, right? And burnout. Oh my gosh. Stuff out and it's not covering and you've got that very base level survival stress happening behind the scenes while you're like, and now it's all self-regulate. Exactly. (laughs) That was exactly what it was. And so when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, you know, we realized, oh my gosh, we've built this. So we left our jobs at some point and now she recovers is our thing. And when the pandemic hit, at this time we were doing in-person retreats, workshops, and events. Well, you can no longer do in-person things anymore. We don't know for how long. So we had a few weeks of grieving mm-hmm. and just kind of, you know, conversations amongst the two of us of, wow, you know, we, we gave it our best shot and it was amazing. Um, but this, like, we've got to, we got to go get jobs. This is, we can't, obviously this is the end of She Recovers. And then on April 7th of 2020, so a few weeks later, we received an email that we received our nonprofit charitable status, which we had applied for years ago. But of course, the process is, you know, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And so that was another divine situation that happened because then we realized, oh, my gosh, we can keep we can keep going now. We can do this in the way that we've always wanted to do it where we can be really mission focused and we can get funding, you know, mm. and, and donations. And so we, we pivoted to online. And what we still do to this day is we have two free online Zoom gatherings that are hosted by our trauma-informed She Recovers recovery coaches. We also offer free She Recovers trauma-informed yoga and trauma-informed She Recovers dance. This is all on Zoom. You can find it on sherecovers.org. Um, and then we also were starting to get back into a little bit of in-person events as well. And right now we're just working on our chapter development. So, you know, the vision is to have She Recovers chapters globally hmm. where people can connect with each other in person and the offerings will be free. You know, accessibility hmm. is so important to us. So hmm. creating spaces where people can get together and, you know, community is so important so that's that's where we're headed next that's our big focus is now that we can start to be in person again let's let's make that happen Mm. while still doing all of the online stuff as well because they've been really supportive and important wow such an amazing offering a free offering for people recovering from all the things okay so now you are engaged you're seven months pregnant you're thriving in your business Oh, look at you. You're a high performance individual again. You have all of these skills now, but are there still things that come up that challenge your sobriety at times? Like these are all pretty stressful thresholds. And, you know, many of us, it's like, yeah, we can put in thousands of hours in our healing, but there's still sometimes things that we're like, wow, I'm being really challenged right now. Like what's your growth edge and your own healing journey now? Yeah. Oh, I love this. So I can say confidently today that my sobriety from substances, solid, absolutely, absolutely solid. Um, that, and of course, I'm never going to take that for granted. And I will always stay close to my recovery practices. Um, you, Carmen, have been such a big part of that as my, you know, trauma therapist, somatic trauma therapist and everything that you offer as well. So thank you for saying that. So thank you. Thank you for that as well. Also, I just got to say, um, so the, the substances, I really feel like, okay, right now in my life, ugh, I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. But what comes up for me these days is there's still the, I have to remind myself as a, like you said, kind of a high functioning person or or whatever we say, that my productivity or my worthiness is not dependent upon my productivity. And when I catch myself in those loops or those moments, and I really sit with it and turn to it and listen to it. It's the, it's the confident stuff. It's the, it's the worthiness piece. Mm. So that seems, that's been the thread underneath everything Mm. for me. And it shows up in all sorts of different ways in my substances, in my toxic relationship recovery, in my financial recovery journey. It's, it's kind of, it's the worthiness piece. So that, Mm. that is the piece that I'm, you know, kind of daily tending to, 
mm-hmm. and always um, just really aware of mm. that makes sense. Totally. Uh, did you ever get a, a university degree? I did not. No, I don't. Yeah. I didn't go to so does that, how long did that pursue you for a while? The sense of being a sham or, or maybe it's a little different because you know, you have your mom who can compliment that, who has her PhD, but is there part of you that's like, oh, I don't, uh, I can't stand on my own two feet. My intellect isn't up to snuff that kind of thing. Oh yeah. Imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. is a conversation that I, I know a lot of people that are drawn to me. That's a part of their story because it's such a big part of my story. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And just that seeking kind of the external things for the validation. Mm-hmm. What have you found of- that's worked the best for you? I, I, maybe I'll enter Cause obviously I'm asking, I'm like, Hey, we can smell our own, right? It takes one to know one. So I can ask you <laughs> questions and you're like, yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I am fortunate because I have a partner who I, I don't know, it's just in his DNA. Who's like uh, morning, noon, and night. He can, he'll tell me he'll praise my intellect or he'll pray, you know, so I have like a built-in record player that, that keeps going. And that isn't always great. Cause I don't believe him, but it's like a good way to like, work it out. Like, am I letting this land? Right. Am I, is, is it actually coming in? So that's where like somatics has kind of really been helpful for me. What are you finding is the most helpful thing with that worthiness piece? I think for me, oh my gosh, this is such a good question, Carmen. And it's almost one that I don't even know if I'll be able to articulate. Hmm. Um, I think it's just been an accumulation of all of the different things over the years of hmm. somatic healing, of um, different mentors in my life and different people like you, like you have with your partner, different people reflecting things back to me. Mm-hmm. And I think too, you know, I always heard this and now I'm getting it. And this is why I'm excited to, to continue to get older. It's like kind of with age. Like every year I'm just recognizing, like, I am a badass actually, after all, um, you know, just reflecting on my journey and where I've been and where I, where I am and this beautiful life, magical life that I'm living. I'm just, I'm like, just kind of, yeah, it's, I think it's just age is really the number <laughs> one thing. High yeah. praise for aging here on the Numinous <laughs> podcast. We're all big fans. Bring it. Um, yeah. So now you're a mother. You haven't given birth yet, but you you are de facto a mother. Um, does intergenerational healing do epigenetics? Like, you know, because everybody told you, oh, you were too young. You were too small, right? And you're doing a lot of good things right now. You've done all this healing, but are you tracking any kind of intergenerational healing that you need to do? Any tracking any patterns there that, that you're already thinking of in terms of how you'll parent? Oh my gosh, these are conversations that my partner Sid and I have been having for years. <laughs> you know, when when we started talking about yeah, wanting to start a family together and both of us being really aware of our intergenerational traumas and in the family patterns and you know, I I'm so lucky. I always say that I'm a second generation recovering person mm-hmm. because my mom really was the first one in our family mm-hmm. to say it stops here. And to to really shift the trajectory of our entire family's life. So I feel so privileged to have that. But of course, there's still trickle, <laughs> trickle things. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for my partner, Sid, as well, he's, he's the first in his family. And, you know, very, very, we're very aware of them and very lucky to have the types of relationships with my family that I can openly have these types of conversations mm-hmm. to dive into the patterns and and talk about what what is going to stop with me actually and not continue mm-hmm. going forward mm-hmm. and um yeah I'm excited to see how it goes you know the best of intentions mm-hmm. and you know also knowing that we're going to continue to Sid and I are going to continue to stay really focused on our own healing journeys as individuals for Flynn. Flynn is going to be our son's name. And um, also just knowing that what's also going to be really important is having just a really supportive community around him as well. So he has other people to lean on and and look up to and and support him also. Mm -hmm. So let's cast the spell right now. At 16, Flynn does not 
replay what either you or Sid do, do, right? Let's say, but he's going to have, or they're going to have their own journey. And um, that's part of the rite of passage, right? Is there needs to be something to differentiate from something to, you know, to um, individuate with. Uh, And so is there anything you think you would do differently than say what your, your mom did? Is there anything that you're like, Hmm, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to stop. I'm going to do this differently. Yeah. You know, I think, I think I'm just going to keep the conversations really open and honest with discretion, of course, because of course, certain things you, you, there's age appropriate conversations that you have, but I think what's interesting for me was I grew up in 12 step rooms, listening to all of these stories and knowing my parents' story, but also at the same time, it was downplayed a little bit to, to my, I felt like it was downplayed. Mm. And so I think for me, it'll just be about being really honest about you know, kind of the the journey of how substances affect Sid and I, Mm -hmm. not from a a scary place, you know, not like the D.A.R.E. program approach, but just from just a really honest approach. And I think that what I really want to do as well, a little bit differently is celebrate recovery more. Because Mm -hmm. again, even though I grew up in 12-step homes, there was still this just, um, I really knew what addiction sounded like and looked like and I saw my parents who were in recovery and they were living a really beautiful life but I never saw them really celebrating it Mm. and I think a part of that was they got busy Mm. they got really busy and I think they just took it for granted and maybe they were downplaying their own their own journeys in a way so I think I never want to lose the the celebration of how beautiful life and recovery is and how recovery has been a foundation for everything else Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, just keep the conversations open and celebratory mm-hmm. to just show how, what a beautiful life it can be, um, mm-hmm. in, in recovery. Mm-hmm. Can we dog leg here for a second? Cause I yeah. just caught myself saying, will you do anything differently from your mom? And I'm just noticing it's partially because you and your mom work together and you're close yeah. and you're, you're public facing, but also I think subconsciously we, we put that on with women and mothers, mm-hmm. like you are the emotional center. You are the, the locus of the emotional health of the family unit. And I, and it's right. like, what the fuck dad? Like, <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of want to, I don't want to ask the exact same question when you do something differently from your dad, but maybe what I'll say is, uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on like patriarchy and recovery and, um, the role of women as, as healers and the absence of, um, good models, uh, and the absence of responsibility, like what the hell dad, how was your parenting at the time? (laughs) Well, and that's so funny that you're asking that now. And if you were, I, I can so very easily answer that with the lens of how I would do things differently from my father. Okay. Dad, go ahead. <laughs> right. And I will answer that. Okay. Um, you know, with my mom, because she did, she worked her ass off every single day on her healing and her recovery for me and my sister, like for mm-hmm. her kids. Um, you know, it's like what I would do differently from her is really minor, like really, really, really minor and nothing detrimental. Mm-hmm. And yes, when it comes to my father, right? So my parents split up, of course. Um, so my mom remarried to a, an amazing man who she met in the 12-step program, Al. Al's been my stepdad since I was six years old. Freaking awesome human being. I can hear him walking around upstairs right now. I'm in my parents' <laughs> basement visiting. And um, what I would do differently from my father, my biological father, is what I've already been doing, which is going to therapy and, um, you know, taking the thing about my dad is that's very interesting is there's kind of that victim mentality and no kind of taking responsibility for, you know, things that happened and things that occurred. And just always kind of in that blaming and deflecting mode. Mm. And growing up, my dad got to be 
the fun parent. I would go to his house every second weekend and it would be fun. We would do fun things together. And then the older I got, it was an interesting dynamic shift because then I actually started realizing I was needing to parent my father. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, you know, the, the, with the patriarchy thing and being a woman and then, you know, being a girl at the time, really, mm-hmm. I always say my father was my first codependent relationship mm-hmm. because it was, because I then started taking on the responsibility of his feelings and how he felt and, and guilty for him and his <laughs> life that he was living. Right. And that was just so painful and so hard for me and really still a topic of therapy for me, of the unwinding and the untangling of that. So um, yeah, and it was such an interesting shift because I was a daddy's girl up until I was a teenager. And, um, and then when I started, the, the, the dynamic started shifting to me then being the parent, I saw my mom in a completely different light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom and I have the relationship we have now, which I never would have imagined because mm-hmm. I always really was so faithful to my dad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't know really what's that all about. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh yeah. Oh, you know, about, like a whole other parallel parallel thing about the things you start to <laughs> what it's like to be parenting. And I guess, you know, because Al's been in your life since you were six, it'd be co-parenting. Yeah. With three of you, I have a similar situation as your mom, right? I have the bio dad and the stepdad who's been around five years old kind of thing. And so, um, you you do start, it's like, it it transfers from the child parenting, the parent to the co-parent being like, you are missing this. You need to, you like the time is ticking away. They're moving out soon. You're missing it. Your chance to like actually be the parent. And now you're just going to be in like a, a, a dissatisfying relationship for both of you, you know? Totally. Yeah. What is that about? I do see it as like patriarchy, right? Just I, it has to be. Putting all the emotional load and the emotional labor on the woman identified and the, you know, femme coded folks in the relationship. Oh, yeah. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's hard to watch. Okay. So it's hard to watch. Yeah. Now I'd like to talk about creativity and you are in the process right now, literally creating a life. So as a pregnant woman, are you feeling generative and creative or are you just exhausted? <laughs> like, how's that going? <laughs> Do you feel like, oh, the miracle of life is making me feel so <laughs> flourishing or, or something else? You know what? It's both. It's 50, 50, the first three months, it was, there was nothing. There was nothing but bed poutine and chocolate milk, but over the second and third trimester, yes, I feel so creative. I feel so generative. I've never been so tired in my life, but I'm also, yeah, I feel so inspired and definitely more creative than I ever have. And what's been really interesting, and I think it's got to be pregnancy related that I've been noticing these past few months is with this inspiration, with this creativity, with these ideas coming through, I also seem to like that's rising and my kind of bullshit tolerance radar system is going down. Mm -hmm. So what I'm noticing is I'm doing a lot, I guess maybe this is the nesting that people talk about. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of like energetic, mental, physical, like all sorts of um, refinement so that I can make the space for what's coming through creatively, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Totally. A lot of, yeah. So you're this creatrix and you're like creating your nest for the you know, the, the next piece, the performance piece that is parenting. <laughs> yes. like, and now let me step into this role. And it's, it's a big deal, right? It's a big, it's like improv for the rest of your life. You're just like constantly on. Winging it. So there's this, yeah, this creatrix energy. You also identify as a witch. So are there um, rituals you've done to welcome Flynn into the world? Is there magic that you're doing to create blessing or to help you with the days that are fatigued? Like how is magic and witchcraft woven into your uh, parenting journey so far? Yeah. So 
you know, it's been really, really simple to be completely honest because energy levels have been so low. So the one ritual that is my non-negotiable every single, actually two, two every single day. And the first one is, you know, my morning rituals. So I love waking up earlier. I mean, I have no choice now because I'm just not sleeping anymore, but having that quiet time where I can pull my cards, journal what's coming through and to just, you know, sit by the fire and just connect with me and connect with, with Flynn has been simple, but really such an important anchor of my days. And then every night I've been having a ritual bath. Mm. And again, that's been my way to just, you know, really sitting in the water, using the water to, to cleanse and to clear and to just be with myself and to connect with, with Flynn again as well. So it's been, for me, it's just been about simplicity, really keeping things as simple as possible, which now that I'm talking about it, it's probably preparing me for when Flynn is Earthside and things are going to have to be as simple as possible, but they get to be right. Like I, I definitely went through a phase in my early witch years where it was all about the the magical objects and the really like complicated ritual and, and spell work and the moon has to be here and, and all that. Mm. And now it's just a just super simplicity and an intuition. Mm. And then the other piece is, um, you know, I've had, I think I'm also in a little bit of denial that he's coming as quickly as he is mm. because I do have at the top of my list something that I want to do is start, you know, looking into what rituals and practices and magic that I want to bring in when, when he comes. And I just haven't yet. Mm. Um, so I don't know what that's going to look like, but I have asked, you know, some of my friends and my sister and my mom to help me to start to research, you know, maybe some of the traditional things from our Irish ancestry that we can start thinking about and start infusing. But, but I haven't, I actually haven't yet. Mm, that's so sweet to draw them in. Um, mm -hmm. I have friends, Jesse and Jemaine, who when they had their little baby, Ida, they um, have, I think they both, yeah, they both have, um, they're mixed race with Scottish heritage background. Yeah. And so they had come down, um, this was February, 2020. So right before um, the yeah. pandemic was really, um, hitting. <laughs> we were dragging it in my household. This is like, okay, this is the last thing we've got to complete this, this event, um, because we kind of, we were in lockdown by March at our house, yeah. but, um, they came down, they had their brand new baby. And one of the Scottish traditions, which is pretty common in a lot of traditions is to, um, hide silver dollars and money like it, it, around the baby where the and like the trick is that the parents can't see and of course you want to do this in a way that it's like oh baby can't like get a hold of it and put it in its mouth or something and so I went to Canada Post and I bought like four of their fancy big silver it, I don't think it's a dollar I think they're like five or ten dollars or something they're like pretty big and then and they all had like beautiful animals on them I felt like these were really good blessings. And so through the day we were having like a photo shoot and meals and crafts and different things. And during the day I just like kept sticking them into like her diaper <laughs> or like into the diaper bag and just like little things. And, um, but the key is of course they like accept it and don't acknowledge it. Like, where did this, it's like a blessing from heaven. Right. And Love so it. this is like one of the ways that you bless the baby and you bless the family with, with good fortune. And yeah, so I, I love that you have people who can research and like be your, your co-conspirators and bringing your baby in, in a blessed way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm excited And this. Yeah. This is just, you know, a whole other realm of ritual and magic that I haven't explored yet, you know, cause I wasn't, I wasn't here. <laughs> so I'm excited to, to learn, you know, what, mm -hmm. what was happening and what we can weave into, into our life as well. Mm -hmm. really precious one of the things you said you were recovering from was disordered eating and yeah. there's such a focus on food nutrition and also on body stuff so you had body stuff growing up and competitive dance all of that how has your relationship to your body and like maybe by extension your somatic practices yoga other things how has that been changing through pregnancy 
Mm-hmm. You know, here's here's the honest truth. I, for a really long time, until a few years ago, was never going to have children. I was a heck no, like a really no way. I'm an aunt. I love being an aunt. This is perfect. And then I actually discovered that one of the reasons I was telling myself I didn't want to become a mother was because I was so terrified of the, I'm using air quotes here, loss of control over my body during mm. pregnancy. Mm. So I realized, oh my gosh, I, I want to be a mother, but it's the body image stuff getting in the way. So that mm. was powerful. And of course was able to, you know, work through that. So when I became pregnant, I, um, it was, I'm going to be honest, the first three months were really challenging for me because I was so tired and I was so sick. I could not even go for a walk. Mm. And for me, because my somatic practices are my big, big part of my, my medicine and my healing and my daily maintenance (laughs) for mental health. Yeah, it was very, very challenging. And, you know, I'm in bed, I'm so tired, I'm so sick, I can't move. And I'm, what do I do? I'm scrolling Instagram. And the freaking algorithm, I kid you not, all of the advertisements are about, you know, making sure that you don't gain weight, too much weight in pregnancy and all of these different programs to bounce back after the baby is born. So that was like, I, I, I was starting to almost like purchase these programs of, oh my gosh, when I get my energy back, yeah, I've got to make sure I start working out in this pregnancy. And I was spiraling, like I was going Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. which was really interesting because I thought that I sorted through the body image stuff. Mm. So it was like, okay, cool. This is still here. So Mm -hmm. now I know, I now I know what I need to work on, right? Or refocus on. And then after the first trimester, when I started getting my energy back and I was able to practice a little bit of yoga and, you know, go for a slow walk. And that's, that's all I've been doing the entire pregnancy, a little bit of stretching walks with the dogs, which you might hear right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. I you get background. So hey girls. <laughs> um, they're like, you're talking about walks. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's been, it's been, yeah, I have not moved my body as much as I'm used to. And it's been a really beautiful journey of acceptance. Mm. And I have moments for sure where I look in the mirror and I'm like, whoa. (laughs) But luckily, um, I have more moments where I look in the mirror and I'm like, wow, what Mm. our bodies are amazing. Like how incredible. (laughs) I'm so lucky. You know, I've, I've had such a really great pregnancy. I really, really am lucky. And so just finding the gratitude Mm -hmm. in I'm healthy, baby's healthy. That's Mm -hmm. all that matters. Mm -hmm. And fuck the patriarchy for making me think that as soon as my baby's born, I need to like bounce back to pre-baby weight or, you know, whatever it is. So, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. you know, I say that now and I know that there's going to be work to come in a few months. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's really, I think probably very heartening for a lot of people to know because yeah, it's, it, it really takes a certain strength of will to just constantly be like fuck no fuck the patriarch like no no it's it's a lot to resist and especially when the algorithms like finds your secret <sighs> wound <laughs> like, right? like are you in my head right now yes I will buy this $29.99 program to lose weight during my pregnancy like, oh my god no yeah here. that's why that's when I like do a purge well instead of doing a purge I go and search hashtags like goatstagram and sheep of the day and farm perfect and stuff like that and I just go and like a bunch of stuff and like reset my algorithm okay noted to like dose the field with something more important than that yeah Um, so okay last question I kind of keep harping on this parenting thing but it is like it's a creative dynamic role that you're stepping into it is like improv every day and it is um very identity shaping and it's very spiritual to bring a whole other uh person onto the planet so how do you think you'll parent your child when um, Flynn does actually start? Maybe there will, I don't know, my child's 19 and hasn't very risk averse, but like, how will you manage, cope? What will you do when they are drinking or they're going out and they're just like making decisions that are different from you? What, what, how are you going to manage that? 
Oh my God. Are you going to be like, this is cocaine and this is all the things they do. Are you going to Ruben's parents, my partners, they were like, we will absolutely like help you explore these things as long as you do the drugs with us first. And so that basically delayed his onset of trying drugs till he was like 25. He was like, uh, no, I don't want to do drugs with you. So there's like a lot of philosophies. What, what do you think your philosophy is going to be? Yeah, gosh, I think about this all the time. Sid and I talk about it all the time too. And I think I, I definitely, I mean, Sid and I, we're both, you know, sober. We don't drink or do drugs, so we won't be able to offer that. I'm not saying I recommend that. <laughs> That's going to be a really bad idea. But I do know a lot of parents who did that and, and it, you know, it was, it was effective, uh, like it was for Ruben, who was, you know, mm-hmm. delayed. But um, I don't have the answer yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know yet what that's going to look like. And I think, you know, what I keep hearing is every kid is so different and every situation is so different. So I think right now for me, I'm just holding the tr- that I can trust that when the time comes, we will have some ideas of what to do and you know, I, you know, everyone says you're going to fuck up your kid no matter what, even with the best of intentions, like it's, no one's getting out of this perfectly untraumatized or perfect. So just, yeah, I think for me, it'll just be about trusting my intuitive knowledge, you know, as a parent. And I think the landscape when Flynn is a teen is going to look so different than it does now and is already so different than when I was. So and what is, what a silly answer is that I don't have one yet. No, I think it's great. What I hear you saying is I'm going to attune to my child. Yeah. <laughs> and just trust myself, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's Good the job. best we can do. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I think one of the ways that others might identify you is like a very positive person, a very joyful person. So where do you put all your grief and your rage? How do you, Taryn Strong, woman recovering from all the things how do you work with grief and rage Mm. you know I let myself feel it which is a really wonderful thing to be able to say because for so long I ran from it I didn't want to feel it I would distract myself with with the, the substances with the relationships with the workaholism you know all the different things So these days, it's about letting myself feel it, knowing that um, feeling it, I can, I can alchemize it and transform it into, into beauty. And I'll be okay on the other side of it. For so long, I ran from grief and rage because I just didn't think I was strong enough to be able to, to feel it or to touch it. And I think the other powerful part of being able to allow myself to, to sit with it and lean into it is there was a period of my life where I, you know, I really kind of gave into the spiritual bypassing situation. (laughs) Um, And there was, there was a period of my life where I thought, I really thought grief and rage and and all of those types of things were, were negative. And if I would have an angry thought, or if I'd feel grief or any of those things, I would then start to kind of freak out that I was feeling that way or thinking that way because mm-hmm. it was supposed to be love and light only, right? Mm-hmm. Good vibes only. Yeah. And you're going to attract more of the same and, exactly. and like, then you get anxiety about feeling difficult feelings. Exactly. So thank goodness um, I was able to get, get, get out from that. And so now it, it's the feeling and, you know, one of my favorite things to do when grief or rage are present is drum. I love drumming and just sitting with my drum and just letting the vibration of the drum and letting the feelings just kind of move in and through and out is one of my favorite yeah, practices, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. It surprises me to hear you say you didn't think you were strong enough, but I guess that speaks more to the overwhelm or the intensity of the grief and the rage because I mean, surely you, powerhouse, right? But I guess grief can get so big. <laughs> it can get so big. And um, yeah, just this, this, I had this fear that it would just take me down. Mm-hmm. And 
here's the thing, grief changes us. And I, for so long, was so resistant and afraid of change. Mm. So mm. I think that was a part of it, the resistance too, maybe. Mm. And I it. didn't know that there was healthy rage. You know, the rage that mm. I saw was the rage, my father's rage, to be honest, mm. quick-tempered, angry, rage, rage. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know there was another type that was actually the type of anger and rage that we need to actually facilitate change mm -hmm. and really important healing in the world. Mm -hmm. I know that now. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, Taryn. I, I know you get asked and you probably shared so many different times in so many different forums, but um, it's a real pleasure to introduce the Numinous Podcast listeners to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm really honored to be here, Carmen. So thank you for being in my life and all that you've, all the ways that you have really transformed my life and informed who I am today and all that you do for the community is um, just absolutely awe-inspiring. So thank you. Mm, thanks for I'm saying so honored. that. Little love fest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Taryn and Don offer so many amazing supports at the She Recovers Foundation. And, and Taryn herself always seems to have cool offerings on the go. So probably the best thing to do is just to visit TarynStrong.com, T-A-R-Y-N, strong and just get on our mailing list um, and of course you can check out the show notes for other resources mentioned in this episode at numinouspodcast.com thanks again for all the community service uh, Taryn appreciate that the listener shout out today I have pulled from Goodreads where you I would love for you to write a review of the spirited kitchen so this one is to Katie Schultz thank you Katie Katie is a fellow author who left this review on Goodreads. This cookbook's opening pages are a gift in and of themselves, even before the first recipe appears. I do not identify as Christian or as witchy or even very strongly with my European ancestry, yet this book is filled with inspiration and inclusion for the kind of cooking and mindset I hope to embody in my kitchen. Gorgeous to hold and touch and delicious to use. Mm, I love that. And thank you so much, Katie, for taking the time to write a review. It really makes a difference for authors. It really matters. I, so Katie is a fellow author. She obviously knows where I'm coming from here. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. It, thank you to everybody who has left a review. It really makes a difference. I really, really appreciate it. I read them. I take them in. Um, it means a lot to me. It's very heartwarming. And if you'd like to join me online for Wheel of the Year celebrations that tie in folklore, ritual, spellcraft, and trance work, join us in the Numinous Network. This wintertime, we are enjoying the spirit of Yuletide, my annual um, Yuletide celebrations. So to learn more, you can visit my website and get on my newsletter at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time. Take care.